Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. The book of Jonah, chapter 3. You can find this in your bulletin on page 5, Jonah, chapter 3. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word, Jonah, chapter 3. This is God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we come asking for a God-sized portion of your grace, and we ask that you would help us to hear your word, and not only hear it, but do it. Bless this preaching, and bless the hearing of the word, so that we may enact it in this neighborhood and beyond. We ask for your grace in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The people who work for the U.S. Postal Service are responsible for delivering messages. Their job is not to create the mail. Their job is to deliver the mail. Their job is to make sure that the messages that are sent from one party are delivered to their proper address. No matter what the weather or the climate, their responsibility is to deliver the mail. And they never quite know what it is that they're going to encounter when they show up on a doorstep. They never quite know what they're going to encounter. They, They may come with the mail and receive a smile. Or maybe they'll be attacked by a man's best friend. The mail that they deliver may be welcomed or it may be put in the shredder. They they really don't have control over how people respond to the mail. They don't don't know what they're going to face. They only have control over whether or not they will do their job. 
But imagine for a minute a postal worker who shows up at your doorstep every day with no mail. They show up, they're nice to you. They engage you in conversation. They ask about your family and how your family's doing it, and they laugh at your jokes. They're very friendly, but they never have any mail. And then after a little while, you turn to this postal worker and you say, hey, I'm wondering, um, do you have any mail for me? And imagine that postal worker said, uh, well, you know, actually, uh, see, what had happened was I, I, I was a little nervous about this court summons that was addressed to you, and so I, I just tucked it away. And oh, oh there was this, uh, this credit card statement of, of massive debt that you rung up, but I thought you might get mad at me, so I decided to just tuck it away. And I think there was one other thing too. I think it was like a love letter that was addressed to you, but I was so busy. I had so much going on in my life. You know, my kids had soccer and everything. I, I, I just didn't get around to it. You would be beside yourself. You might be doing prison ministry from the inside after you got your hands on that U.S. postal worker. You would be floored at this idea that they had a responsibility to deliver your mail and they held back for whatever reason. It doesn't matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter what kind of excuses they offer. You would be beside yourself because the whole purpose of the U.S. Postal Service is to deliver the mail. You may not like the court summons, but it's their job to deliver it. You may not like hearing about all the credit card debt that you have rung up, but it's their job to deliver it. That love letter could have changed your life if they had simply delivered the mail. God's people have a responsibility to deliver the mail. That's our calling. That's the whole reason why God has put us on his mission. Our job is to make sure that the world, our neighbors, receive the messages that are addressed to them from God. Our job isn't to create the mail. Our job is to deliver the mail faithfully, no matter what the cultural climate, no matter what kind of response we may get. They may put our message in the shredder, but that's not in our control. We only have control over whether or not we will do our job, whether we will fulfill our calling. But we're confronted with a series of questions here, aren't we? Are we nervous about how people may respond to the divine summons? Do we tuck it away? Are we nervous about telling people of the sin debt that they have accumulated over time? And do we tuck it away? Are we so caught up with our own lives and our own activities and all the things that we have going on in our lives that we fail to deliver God's love letter to people? Are we delivering the mail? We've been given a responsibility from God to deliver his messages and they're delivered. These messages are addressed to a world that has been devastated by sin, and they urgently need these messages. And in our passage for today, we see the surprising impact of mission. 
The surprising impact of mission. When one of God's messengers is sent to deliver his message to the addressees. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. He, he, God does this extraordinary work. And even though Jonah is cynical, even though his faith is small, against all of his expectations, God does a work of rescue in Nineveh. So this morning, we are going to see the astonishing impact of God's mission to a ruthless and wicked city. And as we continue through our series on God's mission and God's people, we're going to see that mission leads to repentance and mission leads to renewal. Those are our two points for this morning in our text. Mission leads to repentance and mission leads to renewal. So let's look at our first point where we see that mission leads to repentance. Now, it's important that we remember the big picture of what's happening here in Jonah. Last week, we followed Jonah. We followed the story of an individual man, Jonah the prophet, who was in serious trouble. And while he was in serious trouble, he turned to the Lord. While he was knocking on death's door, he turned to the Lord and the Lord answered him, rescued him. He appointed a resurrection fish to bring him up out of the depths. And, and, and his response after God did this, he said, I was in dire straits. It was looking bad for me. It was grim when my life was ebbing away. You heard me, yet you brought up my life from the pit. And it's with the personal experience of resurrection that God sends him to Nineveh. And now, God is going to show him that the kind of resurrection I do with individuals, I could even do with an entire city. Is anything too hard for me? He's sending Jonah with a personal experience of resurrection. And he gives him a personal experience of repentance before he goes to preach the message of repentance. Everything that God is going to do in Nineveh, he's working into the life of his prophet. And it's powerful. It's powerful because this city, friends, was knocking on death's door. They were sinking down to the bottom. Their wickedness, the injustice that gripped this city, the way that they extorted the poor, the way that they marginalized the outsider and took advantage and how business owners were using crooked scales, this city was sinking down. But God sends his prophet because there is hope in a God who's known for resurrection. There's hope in a God like that. And so we enter into this text. Now in this next chapter of the story, we move from the individual man to an entire city. And we are actually in suspense. If you're reading through the narrative, you're reading through the story, you were on the edge of your seat for what was going to happen with Jonah. What was going to happen with Jonah? And then he's brought up. His life is brought up from the pit. And now he ha he's about to, to head on. And we're on the edge of our seats. What's going to happen now with Nineveh? What's going to happen when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah? Verse 1, check it. After his rescue, the Lord calls Jonah once again. Look at the text. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
But I just want to pull something out real quick. It's three words that are so powerful and beautiful. The second time. The second time. God uses it. This dude would be fired if you were his boss. You, were, you, were, you got a dude who's a flight risk, who's known for acting up, who's selfish, self-destructive. Is that the kind of person that you would use? No. But that's the kind of person God chooses to use. He's, he's trying to encourage you. You can be used too. You, you could be on mission too. It's an invitation to come in. Jonah got a second chance to return to God's mission. And you have to appreciate how the original hearers would have received this. Israel, the original, the original hearers, they would have looked at Jonah and saw that they too could have a second chance to get back on God's mission, to be a light to the nations. They, they, they too had a second chance. It was a hopeful message. When they looked at Jonah, they saw the evidence of God's grace to give you a second chance to get back on the mission. They had abandoned the mission, but there was a second chance to return. God brings Jonah to personal repentance before he preaches repentance. And in verse 4, Jonah arrives in Nineveh and disrupts their destructive path with a simple and clear message. I want you to see this. Sometimes the work of ministry involves you in being a disruption to the current state of affairs. It's not always smooth sailing. Contrary to many popular beliefs, following God can get you into a whole lot of trouble. Following God can involve you in your personal threat. It can make you unpopular. This, this is what we see. Jonah's coming in. He's going to be a massive disruption in Nineveh, but it's precisely the kind of disruption they need. This is exactly what they need. They need this disruptive prophet. He comes in. Look, he's not sophisticated. It's simple. It's clear. This is the summary of his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, this is just a summary of his sermon. Okay? This is just a summary of his message. Undoubtedly, when the people heard the message... They had had, in, 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 in the Assyrian literature, uh, they had had a lot of uh, fantastic events that had been going on. They had uh, eclipses that were going on. And these people read these kinds of events as activities of the gods. And so they were primed up. They were ready for a message of some sort. And here comes Jonah in, an outside prophet, and he starts announcing the destruction of the city, the overturning of the city. We're going to get to that in a minute. And immediately, you can imagine that like the sailors in chapter 1, they came rushing to him trying to understand who he was. Where are you from? Who's this God you're speaking of? What is this about? And I think we can assume that Jonah shared with them as much as he shared with the sailors. And now, he's preaching this message to them. And I want to make note of something. There's a word that's used here in Jonah's preaching. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a play on words. The Hebrew word nepaketh. It can mean overturned or transformed. Jonah's preaching better than he knows. He doesn't know that God is actually 
going to show mercy to this place and he's going to transform it instead of overthrowing it. The word is a play on words here because once we see in retrospect the whole story of Jonah, we see that he was preaching true. God did transform the city. Jonah speaks better than he knows. And the response of the people, I want you to see the response. It's corporate repentance. Verse 5, look at it. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I just want to pause for a second and remark on how extraordinary this is. Because immediately you hear this and you're like, oh, yeah, that's totally unrealistic. It's totally unrealistic. But here's the deal. Nineveh was no more savable than Washington, D.C. They were no more likely to respond to the message than Washington, D.C. Jonah, look, Jonah had no control over what they were going to do with his message. But it reminds me of this great story that's told of an old school theologian named Archibald Alexander. And he, I've told this before, but it bears repeating. He was teaching a group of parents. He was trying to encourage them because they were, they were saying, you know, we're teaching our kids and it doesn't seem like they're getting it and we don't know what to do, how to, how to get them to get it. And Archibald Alexander said this. He said, look, your job is to stack wood. And when the spirit is pleased, he'll light the fire. Grace Mosaic, our job is to stack wood. We stack wood. We add the fuel of the gospel into people's lives. We enter into dialogue respectfully with them. We begin to talk about presuppositions, axioms. What is it that makes you believe what you believe? How do you govern your life? How does that work out for you? How do you bring that into, into reconciliation with this idea? We stack wood, and it's the Spirit's work to light the fire. And that's exactly what happens in Nineveh. Look, when you don't know what to do here in Washington, D.C., stack wood. Stack wood. You can't light the fire. We don't, it's not within our skill set. It's not within, it's, it's above our pay grade, if you will. We don't have that kind of power, but God does. And so our job is to stack wood. Astounding repentance and humility breaks out all over Nineveh. They put on funeral clothes. They mourn their sin and its consequences. They mourn the judgment that they deserve. This is what the sackcloth and ashes is all about. It's a display of mourning. They have brought this on themselves. They mourn their sin. They learn, they grow to despise their sin because they see the end game of sin. It was sincere. The text, I think, is pointing out the sincerity of the Ninevites and their repentance. And don't miss that one phrase, from the, from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is important. Jonah's message was directed not just to the elite, not just to the people who were important, the people who had money, the people who had power, the people who were, you know, highly credentialed. His message was clearly accessible from the greatest to the least of them in social standing. Everyone gets a message with their personal address, and they take it to heart. In this passage, everything, you have to recognize this. Everything that happens in this passage is a result of God's word extended to the city. You see that? This was more than social do-gooding though that is important. 
the only thing you can account for in terms of the change in Nineveh is that God's word was held out to Nineveh. And God lets us know that his word, when it goes out, it does not return to him without accomplishing the thing he sent it for. God's word is powerful. And how do I know that? Because I'm looking at y'all. And I'm looking at me. I'm glad that God interrupted my life with his word. I'm glad that he set me on a different trajectory through his word. I'm glad that God humbles pride through his word. I'm glad that God mobilizes his church through his word. I'm glad that he gives instruction and direction for life through his word. That he helps marriages through his word. He helps parents through his word. He helps the grieving and the suffering through his word. He includes the outsider through his word. Everything that God is doing in the world happens through his word, breaking out in his church. That's what we see happening. It's repentance. God shows he's able to change any city, any person, any community. And that brings us to our second point where we see that the mission leads to renewal. Now, here's what's happening in the text. Verses one through five are the big picture. It's the general picture. But then in verses 6 through 10, we get more specific. It's, it's what you might call dyschronologization. Someone say dyschronologization. I'm not speaking in tongues up here. Dyschronologization means that verses 6 through 10 happened before verses 1 through 5. But the author is trying to emphasize something. He gives you the big picture and then he says, but let me get more specific. And then he comes with the thing that happened before that. So we get dropped in here, and I want to pull out three key things about this renewal. All I'm doing is walking through the text. If this makes you uncomfortable, good. Because it's the kind of discomfort that can lead to life in a more beautiful way of being a part of the community, a more beautiful way of participating in God's mission. It makes me uncomfortable too. But we got to welcome that holy discomfort that it's meant to fit us for glory. Here it is. Verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The first thing we see about this renewal, this renewal brought humility to power because truth was spoken to power. Jo Jonah wasn't called to cozy up to power. He was called to speak truth to power. And many Christians, for the purposes of having influence, are tempted to cozy up to those in power, and they won't rock the boat because they want to stay in good favor, even though there's gross wickedness happening here. Here's the deal. If you need to have influence, then you will be in bondage to whoever can give it or take it away. If, if I need influence with you, then you hold me in captivity. Your job isn't to try and fight for influence. Your job is to be faithful. Stack wood. Let the Lord light the fire. We see this in this text. There, Jonah's message essentially comes to this king and it says, there is a greater king than you. I know that's hard for you to hear. There's a greater king than you, a power higher than you, and you must answer to him for the life you live. You must answer to him for your leadership, king. It's uncomfortable. 
but truth comes to power. And God's truth is so profound, it's able to humble power. This is what happens in this text. He tells this king that his kingdom is in conflict with God's kingdom. And the king responds. It's shocking. The king of Nineveh responds to this prophet in his, in his message. It's astonishing. Verses 7 through 8, check it. And he issued, this is what the king did in response. After he hears it, this is what he does in response. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is the second thing we see about the renewal. This renewal brought justice in society and reform in systems and institutions that perpetuated disparity. It's in the text. It's in the text. The king's decree begins with the individual. It begins with the call to the individual to repent, but it does not stop there. It eventually branches out into the broader society. When the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, he's calling for a change in social relationships in that city. He's saying this is not the way that human beings were meant to relate. He knew that they were being unjust. He knew it. And the phrases, violence, his evil way and violence that is in his hands, these phrases capture all of the sin and injustice in human relationships. This is in the text. This is the result. This is the impact of the mission. It leads to social justice and reform in institutions and systems that perpetuate disparity. The king responds, check it out, and now he's calling for the strong to stop exploiting the weak. He's calling for the rich to stop neglecting and extorting the poor. He's calling for insiders to stop mistreating outsiders. He's calling for, for people to take responsibility for the widows and the orphans and the outsiders in their midst. Those who are easily sinned against are now supposed to be protected. This meant that those who were enjoying certain freedoms or, or privileges at the expense of others would now have to let go of those things for the sake of righteousness and the betterment of the city. This is what's in this text. I'm just reading, I'm just, I'm just unpacking the text. Don't tell me this ain't biblical. This is in this text. The king rightly understood that sin is not just individual it is corporate and social. We sin together. <laughs> we sin together. And that's why redemption turns into a working together for the good. Sin has social effects. There is social sin. He took personal responsibility for his own repentance. And then he repurposed his power to see it result in social justice. That's not a bad word. And it's not the only word. This is the result. This is the impact of the mission. But the third thing I want to bring out, I'm coming to a close. Not black church style. I am coming to a close. Yes, sir. I got one witness in here. 
The third thing we see about this renewal, all right, check it out. This renewal, check it. A countercultural message proved to be the greatest blessing to the culture. A countercultural message proved to be the greatest blessing to the culture. What if Jonah had come in and he said, you know, I just need to trim this message a little bit. Just, you know, like, just, you know, it's easy, you know, so that they can get down with it. You know, like, I just need to take off some of the rough edges. You know, like, just, you know, it's easier than you think to come on in. Nah. And what God is showing us is the countercultural message in the, when you're in a context that is unjust, when you're in a context in which materialism and selfishness rule the day, where, where power and favor goes to the highest bidder, when you're in that kind of context, only a countercultural message will correct it. It's a countercultural message here we see in this text. Now, I want you to see God's people, I want you to see this, I want you to see this. God's people are called to be a countercultural community with a countercultural message. That's who we're called to be. We show and tell these realities that social distinctions are eliminated, that the weak and vulnerable should be protected, that justice in society is an issue of godliness. By the decree of the king and his nobles, something else I want to bring out here. These were political and cultural leaders of the day. They were the cultural and political leaders of the day. They were the power brokers of the day. They wrote the policy. They established the laws. They they influenced the rules of what was socially acceptable. And this personal impact becomes social. It becomes globalized. The king and the nobles now begin to institute a shift in the culture of the entire city. That's what happens in the text. It's showing you the scope of what is possible when God's people act out in God's mission for God's glory. These people now, these these nobles, they now steward their position in a new way to change the cultural fabric of Nineveh. This is what they do. Those who were in a position to create change at the institutional level, they used their influence to create a culture in which the powerful no longer exploited the weak. They called for a change that made life for the poor not just tolerable, but peaceful, full of life, rich, enjoyable. They realized that justice was not a zero-sum game. People tend to think, oh, if you have more justice, and that's less for me. That's what my friend Dr. Mike Edmondson says. And that's not true. By the way, he's going to be speaking at our fall retreat. You need to come on. <laughs> Shameless plug. It's kind of like YouTube now. They be putting up them videos, stop you right in the middle of your video, and put the ad up. This was the ad, right? <laughs> Reverend Dr. Mike Edmondson, my friend, says that it's, it, it's not the case that justice is a zero-sum game, that more justice for you means less for me. Everybody flourishes when the society is just. And we as Christians should be chief actors in this narrative. Chief actors in that story. This change happened. The entire culture of Nineveh changed because of the word of God. The business owners stopped using crooked scales. The people stopped trying to abuse and cheat their neighbors in everyday negotiations. 
The way the people related to foreigners changed. Y'all hear me? This was a people who had formerly used their creativity for the purposes of evil and exploitation. But now things were changing. And we know that these things changed because verse 10 tells us so. If you're wondering if this was genuine, if this was authentic, I want to assure you, fake repentance does not fool God. And in verse 10, it says, when the Lord saw their repentance, when he saw their response, the authenticity of it, he relented. He relented. God saw that they turned and he cannot be fooled by fake repentance. But what's the big picture, family? What's the big picture? Here's the big picture. It's meant to prepare us, this story. It's meant to prepare us. This is not all there is to say about Jonah and Nineveh. This story is meant to point us somewhere else because God would send another prophet into the world to disrupt a broken world and all of its ugly systems. And he met us with a clear and simple message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when this greater prophet, Jesus Christ, disrupted our lives, we didn't just get a second chance to get back on his mission. We got the second Adam to compel us to come back on the mission. We got a person to bring us back on the mission because a second chance without the second Adam will be no use to us. That means the second chance, you'll screw that one up too. And the fourth and the fifth and the 125th, you'll screw it up without the second Adam to actually change you. And that's what we have in the gospel. We have a second Adam. In Jesus, we see the availability of God's grace for those who repent. Now, check it out. Check it out. Jonah came with a message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. But Jesus came with a better message because he said, in three days, I'm going to do everything that's required to make this whole world new. It's a better message from a greater prophet, Jesus Christ. The king of Nineveh stepped down off of his throne to repent of sin. But King Jesus stepped down off of his throne to atone for sin. This is good news. This is the good news of God's story. There's a greater prophet, a greater king, and he's calling his people to get on his mission. Why? So that we can bring people into repentance, turning from the things that steal life to the one who gives life. He has sent us on mission so that we will have an encounter with the culture that will bring change socially, that will see right relationships restored in the world. God can bring, Jesus can bring humility to power because he is ultimate power wrapped in humility. He will bring justice into society by flooding this society with the love and life of the divine society, the triune society. Jesus is the countercultural message of God. He is that message in himself. He is the greatest blessing to our culture. He's the message of enemy love embodied. He's the message of protection for the vulnerable. He's the message of enrichment for the poor. Jesus is the message. But here's the question. Here's the question. Will you deliver the mail? Will we deliver the mail? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. We are grateful for the word made flesh. We are grateful that you have interrupted our lives in the most beautiful and profound way because you care for us. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to, to be a force for transformation in Northeast D.C. and beyond. Lord, help us to have courage, work in our hearts to, to unsettle the idolatries that cause us to hit the eject button on your mission. Lord, we pray that you would empower us. Help us to do this work together. Help us to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing. Lord, let us be known as a church in the neighborhood that people look to and say, they're spreading good here. They're spreading good here. And even though I don't agree with everything that they believe, I'm glad they're here. Lord, help us to have a beautiful witness and testimony to Jesus as a church. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.